I'm really, I, I hope I'm not the only one, but I'm really having a lot of fun uh, going through the book of Jonah. I'm, I'm finding things I've never found before, and it's just, it's coming to life in a way that I, I've never seen this book. And honestly, over the past few weeks, I've read the book of Jonah more than I probably have in my entire life. Um, I believe I'm connected. Am I, am I connected uh, from you guys' view? Oh, yes, I need to do that. All right, we're good to go. So today we look at part three of the sermon series, Wailed On by the Book of Jonah. But before we jump into this beautiful Hebrew poem and prayer in chapter two, I'd like to do a little review of where we've been so far. The story of Jonah is like no other story in the Bible. It's a literary masterpiece that leans hard on two different writing styles. We talked about that in the first part, um, satire and comic book style, because everything in this book is it's huge, and it's, it's massive, and it's over the top, and it's upside down, and nobody plays according to their stereotypes. Like, you think you know where this story is going, and, and God is there to surprise you over and over and over. In part one, we asked ourselves, where is it in our lives that we are running from God? Where are we just straight up booking it to Tarshish? And in part two, we asked ourselves a number of questions. Are we asleep at the wheel spiritually? And if so, how do we wake ourselves up to God's power and grace. But then we learned that this wasn't the best question because Jonah didn't do anything to, to get woken up. Something was done to him. And so the best thing that we can do is just admit that. Admit that we can't wake up spiritually on our own and to call out to Jesus for help. We also asked ourselves if there was a contradiction in our lives from what we believed and how we lived. And then we finally asked ourselves if we were like a relational wrecking ball, stealing joy and power from other people's lives. So have we been wailed on by the book of Jonah so far? I, I think we have. Um, we've taken a number of punches to the gut, but we're still here. We're fighting the good fight. Knowing that these messages, as hard as they might be sometimes, they can be helpful in our spiritual walk. So the book of Jonah, I, I sort of view it as God's wake-up call. Wake-up call. Are you starting to rise from your slumber? I think that most of us realize that we've made numerous choices in our lives that have carried us down, down, down. But just like Jonah, God is pursuing us with the goal to lift us up, up, up. God's hand is reaching out to you. Have you grasped it? Have you grasped it? Now, if you missed part one or part two of the series, take some time this week, pull up YouTube and search Edmund Adventists, and you can find the, the past sermons there. And I'm also gonna give you a little homework once again this week. Read through the book of Jonah for yourself. We talked about in part one how we know this story, but usually we know it from Veggie Tales and the children's storybook versions, as opposed to being intimately involved in the actual text itself. So take some time. It'll take 10 to 15 minutes. Read through those four chapters of the book of Jonah for yourself. Allow God to speak to your heart and to speak to your mind. This book is dangerous. I will give that little warning. It's like a little stick of dynamite. It's a mirror 
to your soul. God wants to show us the flaws in our character, though. I, I believe that. Not so that he can ridicule and punish us, but in hopes to stop our running from Tarshish and to accept new life, the new life that he's offering to each one of us freely. So it's not always an easy life. It's not always a fun life. It's not always a safe life, but it's a fulfilling life. That's what he offers us, a fulfilling life life that shines light into all the dark places. So with all that in mind, let's see what type of illumination God has for us this morning in the book of Jonah. And I think that we'll see that even in the deep, dark recesses of a great fish's belly, there is light to be found. So I want us to take a moment and ask ourselves, how would the early audience view this story? How would they take it? Because there's a bunch of context that we're probably missing, seeing as we're thousands of years removed from the time it was written. What on earth is this story? You know, it's about a rebellious Israelite prophet getting swallowed up by a fish and then praying and then getting vomited out. I mean, what, what does it mean? Well, the answer to that question, what does it mean? It depends a lot on the context. If you think that the book of Jonah just fell out of heaven with no context, then you'd probably say this story is about obeying your God and maybe learning how to write poetry just in case you find yourself in the belly of a fish and need to write some. It's pretty bizarre. So we've got to ask the question, what is the context? So the same exact word, the same story, or even the same sentence can have many different meanings based on the context. And so a good rule of thumb when searching for the context is to begin at the beginning. Begin at the beginning. So how does the book of Jonah begin? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now we saw that Jonah, the son of Amittai, it means, his name literally means dove, son of faithfulness. That's kind of funny, right? Because he's not the innocent dove and he's the least faithful person in this entire book. But anyways, the, the word of the Lord comes to him. And who, what kind of people in the Old Testament does the word of the Lord come to? Prophets, I heard it. Prophets, the prophets. So the book of Jonah is wedged among the prophets of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. That's its context. So the obvious next question is, what are the books of the prophets about? The prophets of the Hebrew Bible are some of the most difficult to read. I don't know if many of you have read through the prophets, but those of you who have, you'll find that. They're quite difficult to read through, but I want to set the stage. So as you're reading through the Old Testament, you've got the story of Israel. You've got the story of Israel, and God frees his chosen people from Egyptian slavery, brings them into a covenantal relationship with him, giving them teachings and instructions through the Torah, and tasks them with being a holy witness to all the other nations of the world. He brings them into the promised land, and they pretty much fail at every point, every step, every turn. The people of Israel turn from their God, Yahweh, and start worshiping idols and uplifting carnal things such as wealth and military might. And this all leads to injustice, sin, uh, abandonment, and ultimately a failure to partner with God to fulfill his plan. 
And this is where the prophets show up on the scene. The prophets accuse Israel of their sin and warn Israel that if they don't turn from their wicked ways, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of their actions and decisions. The ultimate consequence was that the big, bad Babylonian empire would besiege and capture the city of Jerusalem and then haul many of the Israelites off into exile. That's a huge theme in the prophets. So it's sort of like the prophets are saying, here's what you're doing, and you've, uh, here are the ways that you've abandoned this covenant, and here's what's going to happen if you don't turn back to Yahweh. But thankfully, Yahweh's commitment to his promises is even stronger than Israel's rebellion and sin. As you read, you will find that the prophets always look forward to a time on the other side of Babylon, where God was going to preserve a remnant and continue Israel's story. A bright future is coming. So there you go. That's the prophets in a nutshell. And the book of Jonah, once again, occurs amongst the books of the prophets. So the books of the prophets are about a rebellious, covenantal people of God who are faithless, abandon their God, and suffer the consequences. But God's grace redeems them and brings them into a brighter future. Oh, wait, that's the story of Jonah, right? That's the story of Jonah. So if you were to read through all the books of the prophets, you'd find that there's a lot of brilliant poetry within them. And the book of Jonah is one of the only books of the prophets that is written in a more narrative form, right? We, we have this story going on here. And this, yes, there is poetry that we're about to look at, but it's within the narrative of this story, Yet the other prophets develop metaphors and poetic images to talk about Israel's sin, about the exile, about what that's going to be like, about rescue and restoration. So I want to look at a few of these instances to help maybe make the picture a bit more clear for us. Hosea was one of the earliest prophets. He used a ton of beautiful poetic imagery to tell his story. And so I want to look at a snapshot of uh, Hosea, specifically chapter 8 in the book of Hosea. Just a few of the sayings there. Israel has transgressed my covenant. They rebel against my law and cry out to me saying, we know you, God, but they have rejected what is good. So they accept Yahweh as God, but reject what is good. Does that sound a little bit like Jonah in chapter one? So what is going to happen as a result? Hosea continues in chapter eight, and he says that an enemy will pursue them. He then goes on to list more instances of their faithlessness towards Yahweh. They set up kings without Yahweh's consent. They choose princes without his approval. With their gold and silver, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. And all of this leads to some terrifying imagery that we find in verse eight of chapter eight of Hosea. Israel is going to be swallowed up. A nation is coming. A mighty king is coming to take over Israel as a result of their sinful and foolish decisions. And the metaphor that Hosea uses is that they will be swallowed up. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Hosea was one of the earliest prophets. And so many prophets will come after him using similar language, using similar images. For example, Jeremiah. Near the end of Jeremiah's book, 
He starts talking about the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar and the entire uh, military might of Babylon is coming. They're headed Israel's way. And then a specific verse in chapter 51 should catch our attention as we're looking at this book of Jonah. It says, the king of Babylon has devoured me. He has swallowed me like a sea monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Now, depending on your Bible translation, it might say monster, serpent, dragon, sea serpent, or sea dragon. I believe sea monster or sea serpent is the best translation here because the word used there is the Hebrew word tanin, tanin. And it's the same word translated as great sea creatures in Genesis 121, sea serpents in Job 7:12, sea serpents in Psalm 74:13, a monster in the sea in Ezekiel 32:2, and Leviathan the fleeing serpent, which is then described as the reptile that is in the sea in Isaiah 27:1. So I think you get my point here. Um, also, keeping with the context of this particular text in Jeremiah, two verses later, God is speaking of Babylon, which is represented by this monster, and he says that he will dry up her sea. Um, so with all of that in mind, I want to read this verse once again. In the mindset of the story of Jonah, the king of Babylon has devoured me. He has swallowed me like a sea monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. I mean, come on, right? Come on. Jeremiah is developing this image where God has either raised up or allowed a sea monster to come and swallow up his people as a result of their unfaithfulness. This sounds like is exactly what's depicted in the story of Jonah, right? Hebrew prophets and poets use the symbology over and over and over. And then on one last verse I want to look at. This is from the book of Psalms. Now, I know a lot of us were raised thinking that David wrote all the Psalms, but that isn't really the whole truth, right? While David did write many of the Psalms, there are other people, there are other Psalms written by Solomon and others who lived before and after the exile. So Psalm 124, it was written after the exile. So it's sort of looking back upon something that's already taken place. But notice the metaphors that are used. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. It continues in verse four. Then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. So I bring all these texts up to make the point that among the prophets and the poets of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, the very common way to describe Israel's sin, suffering, and exile in Babylon, which would eventually lead to restoration, was the image of drowning in a flood or being swallowed by the sea or a sea beast. Then the author of Jonah comes along, and these parables and metaphors are played out in a narrative where one Israelite actually experiences all of these things. This is amazing stuff. 
So the ancient Israelites, as they were hearing this story, as they were reading this story for the first time, they would have realized that this is their own story. God isn't just talking about some guy. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. The story of their faithlessness, their own suffering of those consequences. And then the big question mark at the end of the story is, is God going to be faithful and redeem us? Is there a brighter future ahead for even me? And that's what we're talking about today in our sermon. So while the fish is not the main thing, it's still an important part of this story. Now, Jonah has had quite the turnaround in the story, right? He goes from having the breeze in his hair and not having a care in the world to being thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish. He goes from thinking he has won to realizing he has lost. His past decisions led him down to Joppa. And as, as Pastor Ellie told me, it used to be referred to as Joppa. Down to Joppa, down into a ship, down into a deep sleep, and now down into the sea and into the belly of a great fish. He's reached the bottom. He can't go any further down. He is trapped within the belly of a beast. Jonah chapter two, verse one. That Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. What can we possibly learn from a fish's belly? I believe this is symbolic of being trapped in hardships, suffering, pain, or confusion. It's not just saying, well, if you're not actually swallowed by a literal fish, then you can't relate to this. No, 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 there's more to it. Jonah was swallowed by a fish, yes, but his circumstances because of that, it was him being trapped in hardship, suffering, pain, and a little bit of confusion. Can you relate to any of that? Have you ever felt like you're trapped in your hardships, trapped in your suffering and your pain, trapped in confusion? You can't find any good answers. This mess can be the fault of others, yes. Or, as in Jonah's case, the mess can be a result of our own making. What do we do when we find ourselves there? How do we pray through and process something like this? Jonah really doesn't have much to complain about here, right? He is in this negative situation and he has nobody to blame but himself. That's an easier pill to swallow. But sometimes we end up in the belly of the beast because of the decisions and actions of others. Look at the example of Daniel, right? He was hauled off to Babylon because of his parents' sins and faithlessness, not because of anything that he did. What do we do with that? How do we pray through it when we're sitting in the belly of the beast and it's actually someone else's sin that has spilled over into our life? What do we do when we're trapped in the belly of the beast in life circumstances that are dark and oftentimes confusing? I believe this prayer in Jonah chapter two can help answer these questions. So as we go through this prayer, I'd like for you to think about your own story. Think about your own life and your own circumstances. Maybe you're in one of these messes right now. Maybe you're there because of your own wrongdoings and decisions. Maybe you're there because of someone else's choices spilling into your life. Or maybe you're there 
and there is no clear way for you to discern whether it's because of someone else or because of yourself. Your life is falling apart, and you don't know why. I want to encourage you that we're going to dig into this prayer in Jonah, and I want you to use it as a way to think through your own experience and think through your own relationship with God. How will you process through all of this? Okay, so verse two. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead or the grave. And so Jonah understands that he has gone as far as he can go. You know, when you reach the end of your life, when it's all over, there is Sheol waiting for you. And so he's saying, I'm there. I've reached the end. I've reached the end. And he's gotten to the point where there's nothing else for him to do but to cry out to yell for help. Now, we don't have time to get into into this morning, but if you're curious, do a little word search on whenever people cried out to God. And I think that you will find a beautiful picture of a loving God when you see how God responds whenever his people cry out to him. But so Jonah is saying, I've got nothing. There's nothing else I can do. I am powerless. I need help. And notice what Jonah says after crying out. He says, you, God, have heard me. You have heard me. Now, this is fascinating to me because I think that most of us, when we end up in a season of life that, you know, are, are bad, are poor, are scary, are, you know, like this situation that Jonah is in, where things are falling apart and we feel confused or alone or trapped in our circumstances, we feel that in those times, God isn't listening to us. Otherwise, why would we be in these circumstances? He's nowhere to be found. He's abandoned us or given up on us or he's punishing us for our sins. But Jonah comes to the complete opposite conclusion here. He believes that is in those moments where we feel that we have reached the bottom that God is there. God is listening. God is closest. Now, why, oh, why do you think he arrives at this conclusion? Let's keep going. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. Now, it's astounding that this difficult experience is actually heightening Jonah's awareness of God's presence in his life. Do you catch that? It is also interesting that Jonah is saying that it was God who cast him into the sea, right? Even though chapter one says clearly it was the sailors. Now, this, what I'm about to talk about, might be a more difficult pill for some of us to swallow. It's a little disturbing, and some of us might get a bit angry with it, but that's okay. Give the book of Psalms a read. You'll find plenty of people angry, annoyed, and confused with how God is working in their lives. So yes, the sailors threw Jonah over, but all of the decisions and circumstances have brought him down, 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 all the way to the bottom. Yet Jonah sees God's hand working through it all. He sees God's involvement, even in the hard stuff. So what's happening in this story? Who is the one ultimately responsible for Jonah ending up in this tragedy? 
Is God responsible for Jonah's sins and ridiculous decisions? No, no, God is not responsible for that. But what about in the opposite scenario? What do we do with stories where someone ends up at the bottom because of someone else's silly or sinful choices? Think about the story of Daniel. Think about the story of Joseph. You know, that story where his brothers threw him into a pit and left him to die, and then they changed their mind and decided to do the merciful, nice thing and just sell him into slavery into Egypt? That story. What do we do with that story? Because God definitely used those circumstances for good. His providence shines through. But is God responsible for the sin in the brothers' lives spilling over into Joseph's life? No. No, Joseph's brothers are morally responsible. So in Jonah's mind, whether he was in the belly of this great fish because of his own actions or someone else's, God wasn't surprised. God wasn't surprised by this. And Jonah even hints that there may be times where God directly brought him into this tough time. Once again, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, but I mean, what do we do with this? I'm, I'm seeing this mindset here with Jonah. He said, because you, God, hurled me into the deep. So somehow this must fit into God's providential plan, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with this, if I'm being completely honest with you. I don't believe that God is some puppet master who is controlling every circumstance and decision in my life, but he must allow certain things to happen, even bad things but he is going to work them out in some way to fit into his redemptive purposes. I'm simply at the point, in my walk at least, where I'm just willing to trust God. If a tough situation will make me into a better tool in his hand, then that's where I wanna be. There's a book by Sheldon Vanekin entitled A Severe Mercy. Has anyone ever read that book, A Severe Mercy? Okay, I see, I see a hand back there. It's a true love story that takes a dramatic turn. Sheldon meets Davy. They fall in love and they get married. And then while studying at Oxford, Sheldon and his wife, Davy, they meet somebody that maybe more of you are familiar with. His name is C.S. Lewis. Lewis's influence in intellectual discussions soon led Sheldon and Davy to accept the Christian faith. But as they grew in this Christian walk, Sheldon comes to realize that he is no longer Davy's number one love. Now the number one love is God. And this leads him into a confused sort of jealousy. He becomes jealous of God and that his wife loves God more than she loves him. And then Davy becomes fatally ill and dies. And Sheldon goes on this intense journey of grief and he's trying to understand what sorrow had to teach him or what God had to teach him through that sorrow, if anything at all. So it's a beautiful story of both human and divine love. And this, I think, is what Jonah seems to be realizing. A severe mercy is being dealt out. These circumstances that Jonah finds himself in are very severe, yet he sees God's fingerprints all over them. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for his decisions, but it does mean that now that Jonah has made those decisions, God is present with him. 
Do you see the difference? Maybe, hopefully, maybe as we go further. Like I said, I know this is a tough pill to swallow. God is not just going to be his little genie in a bottle to rescue him from every problem he creates or finds himself in. And I think sometimes we're all guilty of that, right? We do something we know we shouldn't do and then we find ourselves in trouble. We cry out to God, help me, save me, fix this fast. But God is with him. God is with Jonah. But in a way that's different than many of us might feel comfortable with accepting. There's a reason why this is such a hard pill for us to swallow. It's because of our assumptions. We've got a lot of assumptions when it comes to God. We have this assumption that once, we're invite, once we have invited God into our lives, that he is going to make it all smooth sailing and a safe passage to Tarshish or wherever it is that we are desiring to go. He's going to give us comfort and security along the way. He's going to make everything easy for us. But then, once again, what do we do with stories like Jonah's? Or stories about Abraham, or Solomon, or Daniel, or Joseph, or Peter, or Paul? People whose lives weren't so easy, yet they were living their lives for God. What do we do about our own stories when they aren't looking so nice and flowery? It's a pretty naive view of God, and it's definitely not the picture of God that's presented in the scriptures. In the Bible, we see that God's highest priority isn't for us to have an easy life, but God's highest priority is to call up people to himself and to mold and shape their character so that they become they, they, or they, they become someone new and come to a point where they understand truth, the truth that they are a new creature created in the image of God. He wants us to discover the truth that we're not God and that we make really poor captains of our own ships because we conveniently make the ship sail to wherever we think is best for us, oftentimes at the expense of others. In God's severe mercy, he may deal with us in ways that bring us to the end of ourselves. We may not like it. We may be angry at him because of it. But here's the thing. The paradox of God's severe mercy is that it just might be the best thing that ever happens to us in our life. Now, that's hard to say when you're experiencing it, right? If his severe mercy can cause us to realize how broken, helpless, and selfish we are and that we can't make it without his help, then I believe it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It brings us to a place of humble dependence on him. If that happens, it's a good thing. Now, I don't have some sort of crystal ball. I can't look into each one of your lives. I can't look at the past, present, or future situations that you're going to find yourself in and say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know this thing or that thing is for sure a severe mercy. None of us has that insight. But what the Bible is clear on is that no sin of our own or anybody else's can take us beyond God's redemptive reach. If you're unsure of that, Give Romans 8 a read-through. No situation is too bad for God to use in order to shape us into the men and women that he planned for us to be. 
This is God's highest priority. Now, with all that being said, let's continue into verse four. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah is talking to himself here, and he's having this sobering reality. Being the captain of his own life, sailing to Tarshish, and running from God did not bring him the happiness that he was hoping for. In fact, God gave him everything. He allowed him to get everything that he wanted, and it was horrible. The grass is not greener in Tarshish. Jonah realizes that it's the God of mercy that has been chasing him this whole time. And look what it took for him to realize that. I'm sure we all know people like this. Maybe we're one of them. (laughs) But there are people that simply don't need God, right? That's their mindset, and that's what they live out. Their life is going great now. And they feel, just like Jonah, the breeze in their hair as they're headed towards Tarshish, just doing their own thing. They're chasing their own way of life and happiness. There are a lot of people in this world who think that they don't need Jesus. They don't wanna hear about him, and you are not going to be able to convince them with your arguments. There's nothing you can do to get through to them except to be that presence in their life. Be there when their ship eventually goes down. Be that shoulder to cry on. Be that ear to listen. Be that non-judgmental friend that loves them no matter what. And when their ship goes down, everything could change. All of a sudden, Jesus and the life that he offers can start to look attractive and obtainable. So verse five, the water surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This is what Jonah gets, right? When he wants to be the king of his life. He doesn't receive a golden crown. Instead, he receives a crown of seaweed. He continues on, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Jonah has gone down, down, down Life is hopeless. All seems lost. He wanted to be the captain of his own ship, but what he got was a shipwreck of life and faith. He wanted a crown of gold, but what he got was a stinking seaweed crown. He wanted freedom in Tarshish, but what he got was imprisonment in the belly of a great fish. But then we come to the end of verse six. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, amongst all of his mistakes, sins, and bad decisions shines this amazing truth. At the bottom of it all, he finds redemption. Jonah finally realizes that the only thing he has going for him in his life is the fact that God is committed to him. When it seemed that all hope was lost, that was the exact moment that redemption broke through. When our lives start to fall apart, we can't forget about the God who pursues us with a relentless love. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Jonah seems to be a changed man here. In the midst of all of his pain, anguish, and suffering, he remembers the Lord. But where is he still? Where has he not left? The belly of the beast, he's still in this great fish. 
And this is the paradox when we discover the truth of who we really are. In the midst of our most trying hour, we realize that the only thing we have going for us is the love of God to redeem us. Whether it's because of our own making or someone else's, my life doesn't belong to just me anymore. I have a greater purpose than my own wants and desires. Jonah says this prayer. He says it, he goes to God in his holy temple. So Jonah has turned to the hot spot of God's character. He has turned to the temple. And as a Christian today for us, as Christians, where is the hot spot of God's character and presence that I now look to? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is an important reminder for all of us because typically when we find ourselves in terrible situations, where does our focus go? Typically though, in in our fallen nature, where do we find ourselves going? It's... (laughs) Praise God. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I reacted with that all the time. But sometimes what I find is when I'm angry, when I'm confused, when I'm upset, I focus on my problems. When I should be going to the Lord, when I should be looking to Jesus, I look at the problems and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and I no longer see Jesus. We focus on these problems, these terrible circumstances as the indicator of how God feels about us when instead we should be looking at Jesus and what he has done for us as the indicator of how God feels about us. We need to look to one place to understand how God feels about us. We look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because sometimes that will be the only thing that we have going for us in this life. So strangely enough, I know we've talked a lot of negativity about Jonah, but strangely enough, in this instance, I want you to be like Jonah. Be like Jonah. When we get to the place where Jonah is, it won't matter what happens in our life. We know who we belong to. We know the God who is committed to us and our salvation. We can end up like Paul and Silas in Acts 16, right? They've been beaten in prison and chained up in a disgusting prison, and they don't know what's coming. Maybe death in the morning. But what do we find them doing? They're singing hymns of praise to God in the prison cell. They were under the conviction that their life was not theirs anyways. They learned to be like Jonah. Can we learn to be the same? Can we learn to say, if God decides to deal me a severe mercy through this experience, then so be it. I trust that he has my best interest in mind and that he will use this experience to shape and to mold me. Verse eight, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Why is he all of a sudden talking about idols? You know, I think that sometimes we're quick to equate idols with statues of stone and wood. But here, Jonah has made himself into the idol, right? He put his own wants and desires before God, and he's realizing his mistake in doing so. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. What gratefulness and praise from a man who is, once again, still in the belly of this great fish. So as Adam comes up and just plays softly, I want you to answer this question for yourself. 
How is God speaking to you through this poem, through this prayer? I don't know everything that's going on in your life. Maybe you feel as if you're in the belly of the beast. Maybe you feel as if you've hit rock bottom. You're in the depths of the sea and you've got no hope. You've reached the end. And this prayer, this beautiful poem invites you to realize that God is maybe dealing you a severe mercy. Now that's a wild and scary place to be, I know. It's a dichotomy because on one hand, it's the best thing for us, but on the other hand, it feels terrible and it's scary and we can't see the light at the end of the dark tunnel. It places you in a position of helplessness and I don't think any of us like to be in that position. But it's a place where all we can do is cry out and place our trust completely in the Lord. Do you trust that God has your best interest in mind? Because life can be difficult and scary and relentless. Where can we go for this assurance that God is committed to us? We must go to Jesus. We must cling to the hope found at the cross. Because at the cross, we realize just how far God was willing to go for us. At the cross, we realize we may not always be spared from ending up in the belly of the beast. At the cross, we realize that God can use even the most hopeless situation for good. And at the cross, we realize that what looks like death can actually lead to life. So here is your invitation. Come to the cross. Come to Jesus. And I will close with saying, as Jonah said at the end of his prayer, salvation is of the Lord. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jonah. We thank you for this prayer, this poem, this beautiful story that we see ourselves in. It's a window into our souls. We've got problems, we've got fears, and Lord, we admit that when times get really rough, sometimes we view things wrong. Sometimes we focus on the problems. Sometimes we think those problems are a reflection of how you feel about us. In those times, Lord, help us to turn to Jesus. Because in Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, we see how much you love us. You gave it all for us. May we be willing to change and give it all to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and read through the book of Jonah again this week and pay special attention to chapter three because next week we will look at what happens when Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh. We will see that God's power cannot be handcuffed by a simple five-word sermon. And we will also find Jesus in chapter three. So make plans to join us next week for part four. It is what Jesus and the king of Nineveh have in common.